Welcome to the 303rd of the COVID Calls. This is a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Scott Gabriel Knowles. I'm a historian of disasters at the Korea Advanced Institute of Science and Technology. I'm coming to you live from Daejeon, South Korea. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Sonali Vaid, a public health advocate based in India. We will be talking about COVID-19 in India. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID Calls live on weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Just go to the COVID Calls YouTube channel to watch. Program note, today is a special broadcast at 5.30 p.m. Korea time and 2 p.m. India time. You can hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as podcasts on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere you get podcasts. You can also keep up with COVID calls via Twitter using the handle at US of Disaster or at COVID calls. Please help spread the word and send suggestions for future guests and future topics. Please feel free to suggest yourself as a future guest. We are scheduling COVID calls at this point out into the fall, so please do make those suggestions. Thank you. As of today, July 5th, 2021, there are 3,975,948 deaths globally from COVID-19. That's according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. In India right now, the official report is 402,005 deaths. As a way to bring some humanity to the numbers, I've been reading a life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic, and I'd like to continue that now. The headline is, in an Indian city, obituaries reveal missing coronavirus deaths and untold suffering. This was written by Joanna Slater, Niha Masi, and Sham Irfan. Published May 7th, 2021 in the Washington Post, Dateline New Delhi. It was halfway down page eight, one ripple in a sea of grief. The obituary for Damian Tiben Pithadia, a 60-year-old mother of three, included a prayer for her to rest in peace. The memorial would be held by telephone, considering the current circumstances, it said. Her death notice was one of more than 240 spread across seven pages in a local newspaper in the western Indian city of Rajkot one day in late April, a fourfold increase from early this year. Yet the rising... According to the authorities, the number of deaths from COVID-19 in the city and its surrounding district on that day was 12. As India reels under a devastating surge of coronavirus cases, it is increasingly clear the situation is even worse than statistics indicate. The Washington Post checked crematorium statistics in three cities in three Indian states and found a wide divergence from official tallies. In all of the cases, the statistics released by state authorities appeared to capture only a fraction of COVID-19 deaths. Pithadia was almost certainly one of those left uncounted. After she tested positive for the coronavirus and the oxygen level in her blood plummeted, her family drove her to the main hospital in Rajkot, a city on the large peninsula in the Arabian Sea. They waited outside in line of ambulances and other vehicles for two hours. Her son, Gaurav, begged doctors to admit his mother or provide her with oxygen. She died in the car, he said. The only paperwork Karav was given by the hospital was a small slip of paper that noted his mother's death but made no mention of COVID-19. Two weeks later, he is yet to receive a death certificate that was as of the time this article was published in April. If If his mother had received medical treatment, he said, the result could have been different. Said Gaurav, age 35, she took care of us for so many years and I wasn't able to save her life. With Indian hospitals overwhelmed and local governments stretched to their breaking points, experts say the official statistics cannot capture the real number of fatalities in a timely manner. Even in normal times, the mechanisms for reporting causes of death are not robust, experts say, particularly in rural areas where people often die at home attended by family. In a surge of this magnitude, existing systems cannot keep up. Now, experts warn that the true extent of the devastation might never be known, hampering the government's response. Understanding the scope of India's outbreak is crucial to controlling it, said Prabhat Jha, an epidemiologist at the University of Toronto. 
If authorities know where hotspots are, they can prioritize the distribution of a limited supply of vaccine doses and prepare for a third wave of infections that could arrive this fall, he said. To capture the number of fatalities in the current wave, Indian cities would have to release their data on all deaths, not just those from COVID-19, so epidemiologists could study the excess fatalities attributable to the pandemic, Cha said. In rural areas where authorities are swimming in the dark, when it comes to data on causes of death, Cha said, special surveys would need to be conducted. In Bhopal, a large city in central India, crematorium records bear little resemblance to the official count. Mamtesh Sharma has worked for 20 years for the trust that runs the Bada Bada crematorium in the city, one of several. I don't know about the government's data, but I'm telling you what I see with my own eyes, said Sharma, age 46. He shared a ledger that he maintains of all the cremations that have taken place since April 11th, with a separate column for those conducted according to coronavirus protocols. The fewest number of daily cremations of COVID-19 victims was 34. The highest was 100 on April 24th. Yet the official figures for such deaths in Bhopal never went above 10 for a single day in that period. I have never seen so many dead bodies in my life, Sharma said. This second wave is killing people ruthlessly. Avinash Lavanya, a senior government official in Bhopal, did not respond to requests for comment on the discrepancy between the crematorium's data and the official statistics. In Agra, the city famously home to the Taj Mahal, there's a similar mismatch. According to the official figures released by the Uttar Pradesh government, COVID-19 deaths in Agra have not exceeded 13 on any day since the start of April. Chandra Prakash Notnani, age 41, has been the head priest for the past 15 years at the second largest crematorium in the city. He said the crematorium has been receiving 100 bodies a day, unheard of before this year. Most of them are COVID-19 patients. But when you read the newspapers the next morning, the official figures say only five people died of COVID-19 in the entire district, he said. We know it's a lie. Early in April, newspaper editor Jayesh Thakrar watched in dread as the number of obituaries in the Rajkot edition of the Daily Sandesh began to climb. In normal times, there would be no more than two pages of death notices in the 16-page paper, he said. But in April, that rose as high as nine forcing the paper to expand to 20 pages to accommodate them. The tragedy is that they're hiding it, said Thakrar. Official statistics say 220 people died of COVID-19 in the second half of April in Rajkot and its surrounding district, but figures provided by one of the city's seven coronavirus-only crematoriums indicated that it alone handled 673 COVID-19 deaths in that period. Pithadiya, the mother of three, was not treated by a hospital, and her case would not have been considered by the audit committee, the doctor said. Her son, Gaurav, an accountant, spent harrowing hours at the hospital's morgue waiting for his mother's body. What he saw there shook him, more than 20 ambulances, each one carrying five dead bodies, leaving the hospital for crematoriums. In the wee hours of the morning, after waiting four hours at the cremation ground, it was his mother's turn. Now, Gaurav is full of rage against the government of Prime Minister Narendra Modi a politician whom he supported until recently. He said the current crisis made him feel ashamed to be an Indian citizen. Modi spent hundreds of millions of dollars building the world's tallest statue, but we don't have oxygen, he said. My mother could have been saved if there was oxygen. Okay, I'd like to turn to the conversation for today, and let me introduce my guest for today. I'm so pleased to Welcome her. Dr. Sonali Vaid is a medical doctor with a master's in public health from the Harvard School of Public Health. For over a decade, she's worked to improve the quality and safety of health care. Her work has spanned several countries in Asia and Africa. She's consulted for international organizations such as the World Health Organization and UNICEF. She supports teams of health workers in improving health care services. Some areas of care she's helped improve, including maternal and neonatal health, injection safety, infection control, emergency care, surgical safety, and health worker safety. Dr. Fade is also currently an Aspen New Voices Fellow. This is a year-long program that provides media and advocacy training for frontline development experts. Dr. Sonali Fade, thank you so much for making time to join me on COVID calls today. Thank you so much for having me, Scott. Looking forward to yeah. 
I'd like to start the way I usually do, find out where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation looks like there. So I'm based in India. I'm usually based in Delhi, but currently I'm in the state of Himachal Pradesh, which is in the northern part of India. It's a mountainous, hilly state, has a population of about 68 lakhs, 6.8 million. Um, It's it's done compared to many other states. It's done reasonably okay in managing the surge. Um, Not as badly hit as Delhi and uh, Uttar Pradesh and some other parts of the country. Uh, I generally also have a high level of trust in our local administrative systems if they are allowed to uh, function to the best of their capability. So which it seems that the Himachal Pradesh government has done. Uh, This area was not very affected during the first wave. But this wave, since rural areas were less affected in the first wave, this year, this area did get affected. There were hundreds of cases. Uh, There were several deaths also, uh, but we did not see the kind of running around for oxygen that we witnessed in Delhi. Uh, Right now, things are okay. Things have opened up. Uh, This area relies a lot on tourism. So they have opened up to tourists now. Um, they're still seeing cases, um, you know, a few t- 10, 50, 10, 50 cases, uh, but uh, it's not such a big uh, issue right now. Uh, but I do feel they have become too lax too soon. Um, and we are in a very uh, vulnerable situation. Uh, there are remote villages, other areas, and I think uh, places which have not yet been affected are at a very, very high risk of uh, getting COVID. Um, I'll also add, this is an interesting area because this is in Himachal is where, you know, we have the Tibetan government in exile. Uh, So we Mm. have this holiness. There are a lot of monasteries here uh, with um, uh, a lot of residents, you know, 500, 600 people. They've done an exceptional job of controlling COVID, uh, the Tibetan government in exile in these highly crowded, dense uh, residential areas. They were in complete lockdown, even when the Indian government opened up. Still, they have seen uh, cases uh, which they did end up managing well, and they did large numbers of screenings. Um, But we are, with tourism opening up again, without clear guidelines for uh, prevention of spread and transmission, we are setting up for uh, you know, for a not very good scenario. Thank you for sharing that landscape view and the um, that detail about the Tibetan government in exile being there. Maybe you know, I don't, I don't know, but are they allowed to set their own public health standards in, in that sense, or they abide by the local uh, Indian state standards? How do they conduct themselves in that regard? So I'm not an expert in this regard. What I do sure. know is they they abide by all the rules that are laid out by the Indian government. In addition to that, uh, you know, even if suppose I was I had a hotel, I could set up my own rules in addition to that, uh, which they have been doing. So in addition to whatever the Indian government is saying, they have still kept their, some of their institutions closed to visitation, even when the rest of the area has opened up. Uh, so they have been extra cautious. So we have many topics that I, I want to turn to you for your expertise, but if you don't mind, I'd like to actually start by asking you what are some of the maybe your strongest memory or strongest association of this of this period. I've asked this question a lot of people in North America, where there's a large a sort of a discourse about moving past the pandemic. I know that's not true in India, and yet I think it's still important to take a moment, if possible, and reflect on where we are. Would you mind sharing that with us? So this is, it's really difficult to pick up one moment, um, but if I really, really had to, uh, the first moment that really struck me that something is really wrong, um, not about the pandemic, but about the world that we are in and that we need to worry about how things are going to play out was on the 24th of March last year, 2020, when within a four hour notice, India went into a very, very rigid uh, lockdown. 
which included stopping the Indian railway system on which you know millions of people rely. No public transport. Streets were deserted, silent. I have never been in, in such a environment. So, uh, but this was not it, right? So the same, uh, that day I had gone, so me, I stay by myself and I have another friend who stays by herself. So we both were sort of uh, our social, you know, the social bubble. So I had gone to her place and I was working at her place and I was sitting on my laptop working and suddenly I hear noise, like a lot of noise going on. And I'm like, what is happening? And uh, and I go to the balcony and everybody's out on their balconies, banging pots and pans. So basically what had happened, uh, our prime minister had announced the lockdown and had also said that, you know, at 5 p.m. everybody should come out and thank the frontline workers and healthcare workers and bang pots and pans as a symbol of support. But basically what he did was he had co-opted a symbol of resistance, which is basically used in Brazil and other countries to oppose the government, uh, you know, as a show of support for a government. At the same time, I'm getting WhatsApp messages from young doctors who are working interns, who are working in hospitals across India, saying they don't have N95 masks, they don't have PPE, They've spent whatever pocket money they had on getting masks for themselves. How do they get more? Right. So on the one hand, I'm getting messages about uh, shortages of masks and personal protective equipment from people who need to be protected. And on the other hand, I'm witnessing our almost our entire public just playing along with what they've been tasked to do for that day. Um, and in my mind, at that stage, the government had not done enough in order to protect uh, healthcare workers or to prepare for the pandemic. So I totally lost my cool because I, I knew he does announced this, but I really did not expect the public to go along with this. So I was just chilling away doing my thing. And when I saw this, I just lost it. So I went on the balcony and I, I basically started shouting at people like, what's wrong with you guys? <laughs> so so I and I'm curious to know what all these people who were banging pots and pans 17 months ago where are they now because many sadly many of their families have been must have been affected in Delhi um you know many of them must have lost livelihoods because of the pandemic and not getting any government support right so it was a very uh disturbing disconnect between what the public should be demanding for. We can't just blame our leaders. We get the leaders we deserve in a democracy. So, um, and, and what the government is delivering for us. I can really picture that. And there's also a sort of metaphorical quality to a public health expert like yourself, trying to get people's attention and say, I mean, in essence, if I, if I understand you right, like pay attention to the structure here, people. We've got a real problem that the government has not supplied PPE. I, and I want to follow up on that um, because India has a pretty remarkable public health history. And, and even the reporting through last spring and, and summer, you know, outside of India was largely something's going right. How is India able to manage a country with such a dense population? vast inequalities. Um, the United States is falling apart and, and India is doing very well. And then, of course, as you move into the second wave, it's a very different situation. So I know it's a huge topic, but I'm sort of wondering, I mean, kind of two questions there. How do you account for this extraordinary rise in cases with the second wave? And, and I guess to a certain extent, the failure or the incapacity of the public health infrastructure, which has traditionally been a point of pride. Yeah, so this was what I was thinking initially, you know, February, March, you know, we have a robust, you know, public health system, especially at the local level in towns, districts, villages. You know, we have images of polio vaccinators, you know, crossing, you know, flooded uh, rivers to get to the last child. Um, you know, but what transpired was quite contrary to that expectation. Having a stringent lockdown for three months in a country like India is, is, is an, was a nightmare. And the reason we are, we are more disturbed by the second wave than the first wave is because the second wave affected the middle and upper classes. So there is more of a ruckus, you know? 
the loss is genuine uh, the pain is real but you know a, a huge amount of pain was born in the first uh, wave and not in the first wave even during the lockdown by migrant workers who you know hundreds and thousands of them were walking home for thousands of kilometers uh you know i somehow got many people not just me many people got involved in arranging transport for migrant workers in their neighborhood and i happened to be one of them and people wear rubber slippers here and i have not seen the rubber become so thin on their slippers because some of the people were passing through delhi and they'd been walking and this was may scorching heat and you know by some accounts people say that the indian subcontinent has not seen such a mass migration since the time of the partition um wow. so the 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 lockdown which we have stopped talking about uh you know it it was a disaster for many many people and to my knowledge there's only one study and i've emailed it to you it it's uh, you know on uh, denial and data about the lockdown deaths they went through media reports and they documented a thousand deaths not because of covid but because of the lockdown um you know and livelihood loss so many things and we had no measurable indicators that what is this lockdown aiming for if you hmm. shut everything down how are you going to ramp up infrastructure where will you get your electrician who's going to repair your ventilator one hospital in a rural area could not put the copper fitting for their airflow systems to ramp up their oxygen supply because of the lockdown the supplies and the manpower was not accessible so and we have a very overtly medicalized view towards things so there are articles which claim that the lockdown the three month lockdown was a success because the only indicator they are using is covid cases of course if you shut down everything and reduce interaction cases will go down but what about the cost that you incur you know at least acknowledge it uh but that has not, that has completely been erased from public memory and as soon as the second wave began which we could have detected earlier but that's a different conversation as soon as the second wave begins people who are not based in india who have not experienced the disaster of the first lockdown start writing articles and demanding that india go into a strict lockdown to prevent the disaster hmm. you know what the firm did to the psyche of the common indian man so in delhi i live on a street and there is a vegetable vendor who's a constant presence on the street and as soon as so this year we did not have thankfully a strict central lockdown each state was taking their own decisions as soon as um, delhi announced a sort of a semi lockdown he just left and i came to know 3 days later that he's not there you know i didn't have time to reassure him that he'll be taken care of but he left many people left thankfully this time they didn't walk because the trains were on um but we don't uh, we really need to be really careful about copy pasting what is happening in developed countries onto low and middle income countries it has to be a much more nuanced conversation what i'm saying is not equivalent to the great barrington declaration i'm not saying let people get infected and get herd immunity mm-hmm. uh what i'm saying is that a lockdown has serious social fallouts uh which we cannot take lightly what you're describing also squares with what i've talked um with guests in, from south africa that if the if you take a harsh lockdown approach in the absence even if there's government payments let's say and i know and i want to ask you about that in in india what sort of economic safety net there may have been during that lockdown period but if in that moment i think you said it quite well if the measure then is infection only then the government can say see we've done what we needed to do to save lives but of course there's other ways that people die in the middle of a pandemic they starve um they you know there's economic precarity it leads to, is also uh, an indicator of public health failure so that's a real that's a real problem i'm really compelled by this vision of so many people in motion and i don't think that's received a lot of international attention is that because people felt that they had to return to their home in that moment that that they in other in order to lock down they were com- they were compelled by law to do that or they felt they needed to or they felt they were in unsafe places can you say a little bit more about that 
So India has a lot of migrant, what we call migrant labor. So people coming from one state to work in another state where there are more economic opportunities. So you have a lot of people from, say, states like Bihar uh, coming to Delhi for, for labor. And these are, uh, you know, un people who are not uh, documented. They don't have like a house to stay. They stay in the building which is under construction. And all construction activity was to be stopped during the uh, lockdown. And uh, in many, uh, many uh, of their employers refused to pay them during this period. Uh, the government uh, uh, food relief, the Russian system, did not cover all of them. Those who did not have local ID cards had trouble getting uh, uh, ration and food support. Uh, so, you know, both uh, not having cash, not having food. Also, you know, there is this... Um, you know, if if a major global event is happening, there's a uh, there's an infection on the spread. Where do I feel safe? I want to be home. I don't know if the city is going to take care of me. Um, you know, trust has been lost. Multi you know, I, I like to say trust is the currency of a pandemic. Uh, and we have lost, uh, you know, the working class, the labor class. They've lost trust in this government because Everything has been done very suddenly, not just during COVID. A few years ago, we had what was called demonetization. The currency notes were changed overnight, you know, and uh, for some people could not change them in time and they lost savings. So you have this fear of what will the government do next? What will happen next? So the uncertainty, the lack of trust, the lack of money, the lack of food, all of that combined into people just upping and leaving. At least they say, at least in the village, I'll get, you know, two meals a day. Just want to remind folks that you're listening to COVID calls, and we're talking about the pandemic in India with Dr. Sonali Vaid today. And let's turn. You you said that the second wave has received so much attention because it's been the middle class, upper middle class, and maybe more elite uh, impact in India. And the images of and the stories of people going from hospital to hospital trying to find oxygen, for example, have led. Um, international news and those are those are heart-wrenching stories um they really i think put a fine point on the problem of planning but i wonder if we could go a little bit further with that maybe talking about things that have surprised you that have worked also i mean my experience is that local health officials and physicians and people in the front line are incredibly um they're incredibly creative uh, in moments of, of, you know, collapse of a health system. But I, take us inside your observations a little bit here. Why was the second wave so bad? And what were some of the points of, of success is not the right word, but where things were held together? So um, things were terrible. So it was, you know, I like to use the equivalent of you know, being in a storm, like a terrible storm, and you're alone, and the only way to get shelter is this building that's been broken into tiny Lego bricks, and you have to piece that together piece by piece in order to get some shelter. What are your chances of succeeding? So if somebody was falling ill at the peak in Delhi and Uttar Pradesh, in Uttar Pradesh, I couldn't get a empty oxygen cylinder for a family member. Um, mm. In Delhi... Um, uh, you know, you couldn't get the lab tech was not available. Uh, you couldn't get um, a nurse to come home to put an IV line because they were all stretched thin. You couldn't get uh, oxygen. Uh, you couldn't get uh, admission in a hospital. Uh, even we were lucky enough, we were still getting corticosteroids. Steroids um, work when your oxygen levels are, are low. Uh, but they were on the verge of running out. Certain brands were not available. So I've, I had felt last year that the system had collapsed, but I had no idea. Uh, this was an 
absolute fragmentation of the system. Like there was no health system. Um, it was the equivalent of a bomb falling uh, uh, in the city and the states uh, to the extent that uh, I had had conversations with my parents who would, who had been vaccinated by that stage that, you know, what do we do if a certain situation arises? Where are things mm -hmm. kept? What is the document? We had end of life conversations um, mm -hmm. because we didn't know where we could get it from. So uh, this was e even within a month and a half, it feels very distant. Uh, but this is what uh, was the lived experience of many people in India at that time. What worked was many uh, states did manage to do better. So um, I feel like a tired, uh, you know, uh, keep repeating the same uh, track, but Kerala always stands out in India. Uh, Kerala had ramped up its oxygen supplies in the lull between the first and the second surges. They actually had excess oxygen, which they were able to send to other states. Uh, Bombay, which is... Um, you know, mega city like Delhi struggled for the first one or two weeks. They did establish a central triage system. They had this place that they, that was known as the Jumbo Center, uh, where they had collaborated with multiple entities where you could get oxygen, you could get medical care. So there was this one point where you knew you could get oxygen and medical care. And from there, if you wanted, you could go to better places if you had access in Delhi, we did not manage to have that system. In Uttar Pradesh, that system was non-existent. So the examples of what worked were spread out. Uh, and there were individuals who did excellent work. There was an IS officer in, in the state of Maharashtra responsible for a very small community, and he made it oxygen uh, sufficient. So, uh, And it wasn't rocket science what needed to be done. We knew about uh, that oxygen shortages would happen in a case surge. Uh, it does not take long to set up a plant. When the surge began, within two weeks, some hospitals with the support of volunteer communities set up uh, an oxygen plant. It's not rocket science. Uh, the other very uh, interesting phenomenon that happened, and I assume it happens in, in other kinds of disasters also, is the emergence, the spontaneous emergence of communities and WhatsApp groups which just automatically started uh, you know, tending to requests, helping out each other. Uh, but, you know, um, and almost, you know, everybody I would speak to in my uh, friends and colleagues and all, almost everybody was involved, non-medical people even were involved in some sort of a relief effort. Um, but the challenge of that was that a lot of these people were young uh, people without medical backgrounds. It could be advertising professionals, it could be just students, and they didn't have the context, right? So if if a, if I'm helping somebody and they're critically ill and they're passing away, I'm I know they're critically ill and I'm not response, you know, I can't take up take on that onus. But if a, if a volunteer without medical training is trying to help a family and there's a death, they take it personally, a lot of them. And uh, at one point, I was like, delivering an oxygen cylinder to one family is not worth the mental health uh, of another person. So uh, relying on well-intentioned, committed, people didn't sleep for days. Like, it was really mad um, for a, an entirely broken collapse system is not sustainable and it's not a good idea. Um, they you you need to have proper volunteer teams with adequate support, which are established in time and are trained and have guidance, uh, and not rely on the emergence of spontaneous uh, um, networks, which which were phenomenal, by the way. Yeah. Um, just to go a little bit further into this, and it's a hard topic, but I think it's important one given your perspective on this. The stress of that. So you talked about mutual aid and volunteers and the mental stress that they found themselves under, uh, not accustomed to providing life, end-of-life care or watching someone die. But for physicians, nurses, people in the, in the hospital, um, the stress and strain, I'm sure, has been enormous. And I wonder, can we talk a little bit about that? And I'm curious if it's if it has more to do with just the, the volume, the numbers of people that they're seeing 
ill and dying, or something else about the failure of the system, which is somehow also infuriating. And probably it's not either or, it's maybe many things connected. But I'm trying to kind of understand that because to me, it's almost incomprehensible, the amount of strain that's been placed on care providers. So imagine I'm a nurse. I work for India's premier medical institution. Uh, could be, you know, there are multiple uh, very good uh, medical colleges in India. And I'm working on a COVID ward. So, and, you know, there are oxygen shortages, equipment shortages. People are coming, being admitted in the ICU more sick than usual because people are waiting till the last minute. So I'm not able to help people on the ward. There is manpower shortage because normally in government hospitals, you have families at the bedside. So uh, one one member of the health workforce, which we always don't consciously realize, is a family member. And because of COVID visitation, that entire layer has been stripped away and has not been replaced. So you're short-staffed. You're not able to do much with your patients. You're seeing multiple deaths on the wards day in, day out. On top of it, you keep getting messages and requests for help because you are the medical professional in your family and friends network and you're not able to do anything for them. On top of that, you probably suffer personal losses. It could be a parent, it could be a a, a relative, uh, you know, and you keep hearing of multiple colleagues and friends and others people passing away. It is phenomenally stressful. And what I did realize is that we are training our medical professionals to not be vulnerable, uh, to not seek out help. I don't like war metaphors, but in a way we are training our medical professionals as soldiers because uh, one incident happened in which uh, uh, a junior doctor called me from another uh, state and uh, uh, she was so disturbed uh, that she couldn't speak and she handed the phone to her brother till she composed herself. And uh, she was facing a very difficult situation. Her family had had multiple deaths and she was, and the grandmother was uh, seriously ill. And in her opinion, they should not bother with running around to hospitals and allow her to have a peaceful death at home, uh, which is a rare uh, perspective by a doctor. And, uh, but the family was not ready to listen to her. And this was like the last straw for her, you know, in in the face Mm -hmm. of everything. And uh, the next day, so we so we involved some palliative care physicians who supported her and guided her. And uh, um, the next day, I get a message saying, uh, Dr. Sonali, I know you're worried about me. Don't worry, I'm absolutely fine. And there were two smileys. So uh, this attitude of, you know, keep going, keep going um, is, um, you know, we, we need to train our, our workforce in a different way. There was an article um, that talked about the the phenomena that those of us who are on social media also witnessed from a distance, which is these quite extraordinary tweets and sometimes very long threads of people describing trying to get medical care for their family members, sometimes succeeding, sometimes crowdsourcing that help. So this was an example where people looked at social media and they said, see, this is this is pretty amazing. This is, you know, people point to point helping each other doing what this network provides um, a possibility for. You commented on this in a news article, and I want to just read your comment and ask you if you'll say a little bit more about it. You said um, 99% of Twitter requests are from people from the middle and upper classes. We're not able to find ways to help people from poor and vulnerable sections of society or those with limited internet literacy and access. Twitter is not enough. That hit me pretty hard because I think it, again, shows um, how bifurcated perhaps the experience has been and how in our desire to provide solidarity, people look for any good news they can find. And so some of these stories of people finding oxygen for a family member in India, people rallied around that and they said, see, this can be done. And of course, that's just one tiny story amidst a sea of misery. So I use the line that often our health system relies on luck and heroism. Even in pre-pandemic times, you know, health workers are basically firefighting, you know, in a in a in a system that's not strong enough 70 years after independence, you know, successive governments have neglected the health system 
our GDP spend on healthcare is is really really low. Uh, you know, around one different estimates, one point two five percent. There is an increasing trend towards privatization, um, which has been there, but now it is amounting to sale of public assets to the private sector, which is becoming increasingly disturbing. So, um, you know, we cannot rely on individual stories of, uh, you know, success, solidarity. Those are important at a time of crisis, uh, but we need systems. We cannot continue to rely on luck and heroism. We need to push the system to do better. And uh, that choice relies on us as a people. Do we want to stand on balconies and bang pots and pans at the behest of an elected leader? Or do we need to push that elected leader and other leaders, even state governments, to do much, much better than what they're doing right now? Um, you know, we cannot rely on people helping other people, even though that is very heartening and very wonderful to see. I wonder how you assess the impact of the second wave, particularly on India's ability to offer aid to neighboring countries. So, uh, you know, it's like that, uh, what you're told in airplanes, wear your seatbelt first, um, right. because we were not prepared. We did not wear our seatbelt on time. We were not able to provide Bhutan with the second dose of AstraZeneca vaccines. Uh, in fact, Bhutan ended up providing us with oxygen. Um, maybe not much, maybe a few tankers, I don't know, but... Uh, uh, Bhutan actually is an excellent example of uh, of the public health playbook. You can learn public health by reading up about what Bhutan has done to contain the epidemic. They set a goal of no COVID deaths, and they've had one COVID death till now. Um, you know, and uh, we can always say, "Oh, it's a small country," but you know, Australia is small. Australia is richer, right? But you're seeing outbreaks there. Um, so um, they have done an excellent job in containing. Within two weeks, they gave uh, almost all their eligible population the first dose within two weeks. Uh, India has only vaccinated about 4.5, uh, about four, three to four percent of its population with two doses by now. And we started several months ago. Uh, if we continue at the rate of one percent a month, this is going to take yeah. uh, quite a long time. Uh, and, you know, the pride in the public health comes from the fact that we have sufficient distribution points for the vaccine. There is no dearth of distribution points. Uh, within a, a five kilometer radius, I can walk to three places and get a shot. Uh, so we have the logistics, we have the distribution points, we have the people who can give the injection, we have the supply problem. We don't even have... Vaccine hesitancy is everywhere. It's gone global. Um, mm. You know, I, I can put some of that onus uh, of that on Americans. But, Absolutely. But <laughs> it's, it's gone global now. Uh, and everybody I speak to who is reluctant to take vaccines has a different reason. Um, uh, it's become a little triggering for me to hear middle class educated Indians come up with random reasons to not take the vaccine. Uh, after having witnessed the calamity that we just went through, because it's not just for yourself, you're taking the vaccine, you're, you're, you're doing it as a public good. Um, so, um, uh, yeah, so there are a lot of factors here. So we did lose the plot. We, we, did, um, uh, we did not order enough vaccines. When, when I learned that, okay, we have vaccines, I was like, okay, this is done now. We can do this. Mm -hmm. And then even that goes wrong because the first order the Indian government placed with Serum Institute in India, which is manufacturing the AstraZeneca vaccine, was for 11 million doses for a country of 1.3 billion. Uh, what were you thinking? It was only in April that they really ramped up their orders uh, in the midst of the second wave. Uh, you know, complete administrative governance failure, allowing massive gatherings uh, uh, you know, religious gatherings, political gatherings uh, in different places, uh, putting staff at risk, putting government personnel at risk, putting the public at risk. Um, it's just a big, uh, you know, very callous government. Yeah. But how do you, just to stay with that for a second, how do you, how do you account for that lack of 
of supply. And I guess what are the what are the explanations that are out and circulating? You know, I mean, I'm I'm in a country um, that has managed infection control. I mean, infection control has been astounding here, um, but the vaccination process has been quite slow. And part of that um, had to do, I think, with an idea that the if the infection, and particularly through last spring and summer, if infection rates remain low, then why rush into the vaccination global market, into the vaccine global market, in which it would be very competitive? Better just to stay with you know what's worked. But as you point out, at, in the long term, the only way you move society back to something that appears to be normal um, is to achieve vaccination. So what is that one factor that will give you, apart from vaccination, that will give you 70, 80, 90% protection? I don't think that factor exists. Vaccination so. is our most protective and sustainable factor. Even wearing a mask, if I have to wear an N95 mask all day, all the time, I can't do it. It's not right. sustainable. We cannot always be in well-ventilated spaces. So the only sustainable uh, protective factor, which a high level of protection, is vaccination. And I think examples like South Korea and others show that we have to use the entire playbook. Even if we miss one of the you know, uh, ways to protect ourselves, we, we, lose the, we lose the game. So it cannot be either this or that. Uh, it has to be all of it. Uh, at an individual level, like I've had this conversation with people and they're like, okay, I don't want to do the vaccine. I'll do all the other 10 things that are required for me to stay healthy and safe. I'm like, there is nothing you can do that is sustainable and that is uh, uh, that has such a high level of protection uh, as much as vaccination. So Just to- at a social level, at an individual level, uh, we cannot stop. Do- we can't do either or. We have to do all of it. And we have we need to have a laser sharp focus on all things prevention, uh, preparation for future surges in countries which do not have a high level of vaccination rates uh, and uh, protection of health workers, of society from the social economic hardships. So we need, uh, you know, the full spectrum. And one of my concerns is seeing cases rise in other countries like India, you know, Indonesia, uh, you know, Uganda, other places, is that the whole global health conversation has focused on vaccine inequity, which is phenomenal. We need that conversation. Where is the conversation about oxygen support and health mm. to countries and other L- LMICs which will struggle with this? Where is the technical guidance? Where is the, where is the practical guidance? Where is the health workforce? This is a time when you need to fly in missions. I'm not in favor of ad hoc missions flying in, but we could have benefited from that during the second wave. So um, task shifting, uh, evidence-based guidelines, which India was really slow to the game. Uh, It was on 27th May this year that our national guidelines actually became evidence-based. Before that, we had really irrational stuff on it. So we cannot afford to drop the ball on any any component of the pandemic response. Well, I mean, you're a real student of, as in, in addition to being a practitioner, you're a real student of global health. I mean, how do you account for that? I mean, you know, it doesn't seem to me, I mean, we could look at the World, World Health Organization, but I mean, this was a failure at so many different levels. All the things you just listed, guidance, um, you know, various kinds of therapeutics, vaccine, the price of vaccine, the fact that it's not globally free, uh, you know, I mean, there's so many issues sort of compounded here. It's hard to know which one to pick up first. So uh, I'm not so critical of the WHO. I, for me, it's been a help because at least I can tell practitioners in India, even when the Indian guidelines are off the track, look, these are the WHO guidelines and stick to these, right? So in terms of the medical clinical guidelines, they were on track. They picked up steroids, they dropped off ivermectin uh, and other unnecessary medicines. Um, You know, then there are some theorists who want to keep dragging that on, you know, when we can focus on other ideas. Uh, So, uh, you know, WHO is uh, is an entity with, you know, 150, 200 bosses. Uh, Any other 
entity in its place would be straddled with the same problems. Uh, and, uh, you know, were they less than perfect? Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, do we need an entity like WHO in a global pandemic? Yes. You know, can I rely on my government to do everything right? No. So if I have somebody else out there that I can refer people to, it is a help to me. And of course, like all governments, uh, like we need to keep our governments in check. We need to keep international bureaucracy. You know, ultimately it is about the people. No great uh, rights and freedoms have been won without a people's revolution. So if we want a better functioning uh, WHO, we need to tell our governments to fund WHO. Right. Because right now, majority of a large chunk of WHO and global health funding is in the hands of private players, which unilaterally then set the agenda and they're not answerable to anybody. So we need to make uh, international organizations answerable to us uh, through our governments and through our voice. Just to come back to the vaccine issue for a second, um, and you talked about vaccine hesitancy, which has not historically been a feature uh, in Indian culture, and now it seems to be. That's a way into a broader discussion about what this pandemic not only reveals in terms of societal fractures, but what it's provoked. And I know I mean, India is a massive and hugely complicated country culturally. But just to ask you this question, um, what are what are the, the conflicts that have emerged in the midst of this, which are connected to the pandemic, but are sort of epiphenomenal to the pandemic that have surprised you, or maybe they haven't surprised you, I don't know, but I feel like we have to be tracking those too. So in, in Hindu mythology, there is this um, churning of the ocean that happens, you know? So I like that vision, all the muck sort of surfaces. So, uh, so the general public never really thought about the state of the middle and upper classes, did not really think about the state of public health care till the second wave when there's no place in the private sector and well-heeled people are getting admitted into government hospitals and being exposed to the terrible state of public health care. Um, so, um, so I did not know that, uh, you know, about migrant labor issues, uh, you know, how they get evicted, um, I did not know about casteism. I personally did not ex notice casteism because I happen to be upper caste, so it's not my lived experience. Uh, I had read about it. Uh, but, uh, you know, when a migrant laborer family that needs shelter walks into my parking lot and I ask my own staff to have them stay there for a night and they respond with, uh, there is no space here. And I feel the air change, you know, um, and I have them stay in another apartment, which is empty. So, uh, you know, casteism, uh, labor issues, um, um, bigotry, uh, discrimination. There was a lot of uh, Islamophobia that was fanned, uh, you know, by, um, you know, the people in power um, blaming, uh, you know, certain religious groups for, uh, transmitting uh, COVID during uh, in 2020 without any basis, so uh, which led to a lot of downstream uh, effects. You know, um, you know, Muslim women, pregnant women, were turned away from health facilities. This was in Delhi um, uh, because they came from an area which which was a COVID hotspot. Um, so uh, all of that sort of you know rises up to the surface. Uh, in a way, you know, it's good people who need to be aware of things, become aware of things, you know. Uh, but then what do we do with all this that has risen up? And it, it you know, uh, the the arc, uh, how do you say the arc bends towards justice, but it doesn't mm. bend on its own. Uh, we have to mm. do the bending. And uh, will we or will we not? Uh, I was initially optimistic, but you know what happens in the lull between the surges? I stopped getting calls from journalists. So, mm, so mm, the interest mm. wanes as soon as, you know, cases decline. And then as soon as cases start going up, you start hearing about this clamoring for lockdown, lockdown, lockdown. Why am I not right now hearing up, hearing a clamoring for ramp up, increased testing? The village I'm in 
does not have an RT-PCR facility, hmm. right? Why doesn't it have an RT-PCR facility 17 months into a pandemic? And this is in a state that is reasonably responsive and well-managed. So wh why are our testing rates going down as cases going down? We need to keep testing rates high. We are not talking about ventilation at all. None of the government notices to my knowledge talk about ventilation. Uh, our, dead, our guidance for managing COVID dead bodies is, is in the dark ages. It is inhumane. Uh, mm. There is no need for such restricted measures uh, which disallow family members from grieving and doing their rituals when we know it is airborne, majorly airborne. Uh, we don't allow visitation in COVID wards and ICUs. Why not? People are either infected or have had vaccination. Um, you know, uh, and even if they are not, you know, give them a good mask, give them a face shield, let them go spend 15 minutes if they want to. Um, the inhumanity that we have created with an overtly medicalized response is really, really disturbing, and we really need to reflect on it. What do you think the, the broader implications are? That last point you're talking about um, preventing, and this has been true in the United States as well. I've talked to other physicians about this. Big problem preventing families from being in the emergency ward, from being in the ICU, because doctors rely on families. I think people don't quite understand that. And as you say, this sort of over-medicalization neglects the fact that medicine and medical practice is a lot more than just medicine being provided or surgery being provided. So, but I wonder about the longer term impacts of that. For families who have not been able to grieve, for health workers who haven't been able to stop for a second and cope, there's um, concepts, you know, long COVID sufferers who are going to be suffering for a long time. But I don't think we yet have a good way to talk about the lingering impacts of COVID just as in, in a, I don't even know what the right word here, I mean, culturally, mentally is a complex of anxiety here that's going to carry forward. Memorialization, public ritual, public discussion, argument, voting, There's a, those are ways that people traditionally deal with this kind of thing, but the scale of this is so enormous. So I wonder if you could, again, put that in kind of an Indian context for us. I think it's very simple. Uh, what we can do is we can talk and we can hold spaces mm. of listening in whatever way, in our families, in our friends, in our communities. Um, you know, India does have several mental health helplines. They have popped up all over the place. Uh, many have reported a high number of calls. Um, so there are resources available. People need to seek them out. The question is, will they seek them out? Like we talked about the soldier mentality among the medical community. So, uh, you know, even for me personally, uh, despite the intensity of the second wave, um, it feels a little distant right now. So, um, uh, so, you know, I think we will go through phases as individuals where we might feel distant and then you remember something. Uh, so, um, you know, we all need to find spaces of healing for ourselves, whether we feel the need for it or not. Um, it's, it's, we can't neglect, uh, uh, you know, the, the, the suffering that uh, we have faced as individuals and collectively. Uh, I do think public um, remembrances are important. You know, the whole idea of we must not forget. And that's why I talked a lot about last year's lockdown, because we've forgotten about it. Um, we cannot forget deaths and we need to humanize it. So it was really, you know, moving how you began the conversation. Uh, we really, really need to humanize the pandemic, uh, not just the med not just the COVID part of it, but all the, you know, pregnant women have died in India due because a lot of the health facilities were designated as COVID only. Uh, blood banks dried up because donors did not come into facilities mm -hmm. and nothing mm -hmm. was done to address this issue. Um, so there are a lot of other casualties uh, because of the pandemic, which all need to be given a human face. Policing, pandemic policing, major issue in India. There was a study, and I've sent you a link on this, um, in the state of Madhya Pradesh, which, uh, you know, there were 34,000 arrests during last year's lockdown for very minor offensive offenses at a time when the whole world is talking about decongesting prisons. Mm. 
and you, you know, you catch hold of a pedestrian walking by in open air, not posing a risk to anybody and is being put in fined or put into jail for not wearing a mask. It's just absurd. Even now, you know, you'll see that when cities open up, they'll open up the malls, but they won't open up parks because there is no monetary benefit from it. They'll open up wine right. and beer shops, but they won't open up parks. So there's this, comp- we, we really need to move away from all this, uh, you know, nonsense and really have a laser sharp focus on what is science telling us about spread? So based on that, what are the five, 10 things we need to do to contain spread? What are the five, 10 things we need to do to protect our people? And what are the five, 10 things we need to do to prepare for future increases? And this has to be done at an individual level, at a you know city state level national level and at a global level because at a global level the conversation is mainly about prevention uh and i'm glad you brought out the public health the mental health aspect because that's about protection um and we need to and this is not depression that doctors are facing it is not an endogenous uh problem it is trauma it's inflicted uh and not just doctors nurses you have sanitary workers you have crematorium workers you know, where all these issues of caste, COVID, uh, you know, financial security, all of that sort of become even, even more complex and much worse. Uh, we're almost up on time and conversation today and COVID calls with Sonali Fate. Um, but there will be certainly, I don't want to speak with such certainty, but if another wave comes in the fall, there are actions and, and, India has not yet reached a level of vaccination that's prepared for that. And what we were talking about earlier, you don't have much confidence that you will. So what are the things right now that people need to be aware of? And what are, you said, you know, five, 10 things. Maybe you can list a few. What are the actions that the government, the government level, but also individual people in India should be taking right now to prepare for that? So the government needs to stop viewing COVID as a law and order issue. Right. So there was a case in Uttar Pradesh where somebody who tweeted for oxygen help for his father or somebody had an, uh, you know, police case filed against him by the government. Uh, we cannot have things like this. The government must work for the citizens and to save life. Uh, they need to stop doing any everything else that disturbs uh, the focus on COVID. Right. So we have at this I while we speak. The central parliament of India is being reconstructed and, you know, millions are being spent on developing a new uh, building there, right? Why? Versus prioritizing healthcare. Uh, So we need a a sharp, we need a target. Like Bhutan had a target, zero COVID deaths. We have, I don't hear of any target. Uh, You know, what are we aiming for? Uh, Even when the government displays statistics, when it suits them, they'll show numbers, and when it suits them, they'll show percentages. So if I go to a gov- the government website, I'll see number of vaccinations. I will not see percentage coverage, right? That's not useful for decision-making. If I'm right. working in a district in this hill station, I need to know what percentage of my population is covered and who is exposed, uh, you know. So um, we need to be really honest. We need to regain uh, the public's trust. Um, And uh, in terms of what people can do, it's quite simple. Uh, Vaccinate. Um, Now, thankfully, the Indian government, after a lot of clamoring, finally has allowed walk-in vaccinations. Earlier, we had to do it through an app, uh, which in a country which a massive gender divide in terms of digital literacy uh, was really misguided. so, but now you have walk-in vaccinations. There isn't a di- digital barrier. There is an informational barrier. People still don't know how to get vaccinated in many places. So, vaccinate, ventilation, ventilation. We are not talking enough about ventilation. Uh, mm. Have good airflow in your workplaces. Uh, in, do not sit in vehicles with other people with your windows all rolled up. Um, So fresh air is your friend. Any activity outdoors, go for it. No problem. Wear a mask, Mm -hmm. a good, well-fitting mask. Um, And, uh, you know, um, and I think uh, solidarity, you know, be uh, be there when somebody shares their grief. 
Uh, one of the things that happens with people who lose loved ones is at the time of death or just before that, they'll receive a lot of help, support or in the immediate right. aftermath. And then after two weeks, there's a silence. So there's this abandonment. So check in with, uh, you know, people, you know, who've lost loved ones, leave the conversation open, be there. Um, so, you know, so those are the few things I can think of the top of my head. Yeah. And what about you? Are you headed back to Delhi? No, so I, I I'll be staying here for a few months. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. So this is my self care. <laughs> so I see that I hope finds uh, places uh, and opportunities uh, in their lives to you know restore themselves after going through difficult phases. Yeah. I just want to remind folks you've been listening to COVID calls, and you can catch COVID calls usually at five thirty p.m. Eastern time. You will catch the next COVID calls uh, at on Tuesday at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Please do join me for that. And uh, I want to thank my guest, Sonali Bade, for this wide-ranging conversation today. The depth of your knowledge is really astounding, and I really want to thank you for sharing it. Um, and I hope we get a chance to have you back um, to talk some more uh, about what you're seeing there, particularly as we get into the fall and and hopefully people will be listening to what you said at the end of our conversation and take some of those some of those life saving some of those life saving actions. Dr. Vade, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much, Scott. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you. Stay healthy, everyone. We'll see you next time on COVID calls. <laughs>